Yeah, there it is. How has everyone enjoyed Revelation? It's been pretty good, right? Man, last week Steve talked about the seven churches and he gave an overview of the different things where God affirmed the churches and said, you're doing these things really well. And then he gave some corrective action and said, you know what, there's a couple of things though you really need to step up and take care of. And I got to tell you, we had some great conversations in our small group last week. So hopefully you guys did as well. This week, there's a lot of vivid imagery and it's going to be really exciting. So I'm going to jump in today. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 5 and we're going to start right at verse 1. And if you are grabbing one of the Bibles that are in the house today, we're going to be on page 1044. All right, here we go. Revelation 5. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, there, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne. He has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. But it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Thank you, Grant. So, did you see it? Look, did you see it? A couple things before we get what you're going to see here in the scriptures today, I want to point out to you is our partners experience is coming up next weekend uh, at our services here at the 10 a.m. service. It's the next level of commitment here of what it means to join and, and come together with people. So I'm not just going to come here to get stuff out of it. I'm going to put something into this and help make something happen here. Great things are happening here. I want you to get in on that. Pastor Rob's going to be teaching that class on your connection card right now. If you want more information about that, partners or the partners experience, jot us a note there. We'll get you signed up for that. And then we've been uh, challenging you to uh, try out Saturday night. And one of the things that is coming soon, the date is still to be determined, is... On Saturday nights, we're going to expand that out and offer for the first time in like two and a half years, student ministries will be uh, happening on Saturday nights. So if that makes a difference for you, we're still trying to get a few families to come over there and try that out to keep open space here and all that. Love to see you come on out and try out Saturday night. We'll be communicating with you in the next couple weeks. It looks like it's the middle of October sometime when all that is going to take place. Over and over again in the book of Revelation, it's going to tell us, hey, look, look over there. And then John's going to say, well, and then I looked over there and then I saw over there. It's, it jumps all over the place. Uh, what Grant just read for us from Revelation 5, the context for that scene 
actually starts in Revelation 4, so we're going to jump in there, Revelation chapter 4. And look what he says here after these letters of the churches that Grant just talked to you about. It says, then as I looked, I saw, mark that, that's important, a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, come up here, and I'll show you what must happen after this. Quick side note on this. Over the years, churches I grew up in and some churches you've grown up in and uh, various kinds of writings based on people's perspectives on end times events, think that this is what is called in the scriptures, the theologians call it the rapture. When Jesus comes back, it says that all the Christians are going to be caught up with him in the air when the king comes back in the clouds. And they'll say, well, this is, an, this is like a, a foreshadowing, a euphemism of that. I don't think so. It might be. But, but remember here, what happened, what's going on here is not so much a linear description of this happens and then this happens and this happens. It's not, you'll see it in the trail guide that we, uh, it's linked there and you can scan the QR code there on, uh, on your program. The trail guide will tell you it's not what happens next, it's what John saw next. That all these visions keep popping up and it doesn't go in necessary linear sequential order all the time. Verse two, and instantly I was in the spirit and I saw, get that again, a throne in heaven and someone put arrows around this, bold this, highlight this, sitting on it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones like jasper and carnelian and the glove and emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. 24 thrones surrounded him and 24 elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass sparkling like crystal. In the center and around the throne were four and John doesn't know what to call them because they're not humans. And this doesn't feel like the normal thing you would see with angels. He just calls them living beings. <laughs> beings of some kind. Each, here's it's going to get weird here. Each covered with eyes front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a human face. And the fourth was like an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings and their wings were covered all over with eyes inside and out. The first thing there on your note sheet on the back of your program, John's is going to tell us today, hey, look, over there, look, there's the throne. Write that down. Look, there's a throne over there. Before we get to the visions and the fantastic stuff in Revelation, and again, you're going to get more out of this if you come a little prepared. So read Revelation 6 for next weekend. That way you're, you're going to not, you're hit the ground running with this stuff. Before we get to all the crazy stuff that Revelation is kind of known for, we're about to jump in to get a vision of heaven because visions of heaven will clarify and clear and sharpen our visions of what the earth is all about. It says there's the throne 47 times in Revelation, the throne of God is mentioned for us. It's the center that everything revolves around. It goes back and forth, these visions and the throne in heaven and the chaos of the earth. 
It says around the throne. Here's some prepositions for those of you who paid attention to English classes. You know what prepositions are. Around the throne, it says, are these elders and creatures. The elders are probably symbolic of, of the rule and the authority uh, of the most important authority in the world. Uh, the emperors back then, Domitian, who's the emperor at the time of this writing, had 24 people that always went with him, so it could be something like that. It probably alludes to, we're going to see it later on in Revelation, the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel, like the foundation for what God is doing in the world is founded on the nation of Israel and on the church that he established here with those 12 apostles. It says, from the throne, thunder and lightning. You guys sometimes, from time to time, we'll do some different things with lights here or have haze in here because I don't like that. Yeah, you're not going to like heaven very much because there is special effects in heaven. Like you cannot believe thunder and lightning is all over the place. It says in front of the throne are these seven torches that represent the seven or the seven spirits, the sevenfold spirit of God. Now understand something here. The whole, this is a, the, an analogy of the Holy Spirit, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. But God doesn't have seven, he doesn't break apart and go one seventh here, one seventh here, one seventh here. In apocalyptic literature like this, the numbers are usually not statistics of measurement they're a symbol representing something, the, the nature of that thing. And in that kind of literature back then, well, let me say this. If I said some right, something right now, hey, man, that's a perfect 10. You would know that 10 means something. It's not just, I'm on a scale of, it's, it, so this is the idea of it's the perfect seven. The idea of seven in the Bible over and over again is used the idea of completeness and ultimate perfection is the spirit of God. It says, also around, uh, in front of that throne is a shiny, shiny ocean, a, a sea of glass. And we hear that and think, well, what's the big deal? Like a big ocean in front of the throne? Great. Understand something. For those of you who've been paying attention and those of you who've been here the last few weeks, where is John seeing this vision from? An island, right? It's island of Patmos. What surrounds an island? Trick question, right? The ocean, right? If you watch the film The 300, if you've seen other stuff back in those days, different than how we look at the ocean today, we build resorts there and we can... Back then, the ocean symbolized chaos and foreboding and gloom and like you don't know that all that's going to happen there. It was a sketchy time to go out on an ocean cruise or anything. You didn't do that unless you had to. It was an, the ocean was terrifying. This is the ocean that separates John from these seven churches, the people that he knows in those seven churches. And God says, I rule and reign even over the chaos, even over the stuff that's most terrifying to you. I don't know what your ocean is today. God says, I've got it under control. Doesn't seem like it right now. Big theme of revelation is things are not as they seem, despite all appearances of the contrary, the sea. So there's around the throne, uh, from the throne, in front of the throne, but the most important preposition here is not all those, it's who's on the throne. It tells us that there's someone sitting on the throne. You'll see there uh, several times in Revelation, whenever this, the throne is pictured and there's the, the, the person who has the right, the king of the universe to rule and reign, not one time is the king of the universe seeing the crazy, awful, terrifying things going on on the, on the on the earth and going, oh my God, what are we going to do? 
COVID, what are we going to do? Donald Trump, what are we going to do? Joe, what are, nobody's freaking out at that. You know what he's doing? Sitting there. You know why? Because he's won. Just like what the king does, the king sits. He's not freaking out. And now we're freaking out. But he says, hey, you don't have to freak out about this. Things are not as they seem. He's sitting on the throne. He's got all this. And in the midst of the chaos of the first century, in the first century, we, we know from, uh, from historical writings, not by people who are Christians or trying to make a point about Christianity, we know this from people who are just historians back then, that under the reign of the Caesar Domitian, 40,000 Christians were killed because they were Christians. They weren't rebelling. They weren't, the only thing they wouldn't do is that back then you had this little phrase, Caesar is Lord. When you go into the market, you sit, miss it, and they go, when Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus is Lord. 40,000 people killed for that. If we lost our minds when they made us wear a mask to come to church. Imagine if they start killing you for coming to church. And you're going, I'm not sure I like this very much. I'm not sure that he's got... The first question that comes from this vision of the throne is, write this down on your note sheet, is God really on the throne? Because it sure doesn't seem like it right now. And for some of you, the things that are going on in your life right now, it doesn't feel like it. You come here and sing songs about Jesus is king and he's king and you're going, are you kidding me, dude? you know my life right now? First century Christians would have been thinking that. That's why John is pulling, Jesus is pulling back the curtain, the apocalypse, the unveiling to show him what really is going on here, that he really is on the throne. There's not an eternal battle. Back in those days, there was the battle of the good gods and the evil gods, all this kind of dualism kind of thing. No, there's one God and he's got this thing. The second question that emerges out of this that's good that's to personalize this for us is who or what's on my throne? the throne of my life, who or what do I center my life around? Um, you will organize and center your life around someone or something, whether you're a Christian today or not a Christian. Someone or something is on the throne of your life. That's the one you look to for ultimate meaning and value. And sometimes it's dirty, ugly, nasty, awful stuff. And sometimes it's things like having a good career, having a good family, having a good family, uh, all the success, all those kind of things. Be all those things. Some, and what we try to do oftentimes is say, well, I want to keep that thing on my throne. I just want to get a little Jesus juice in here and see if you can boost that throne up there. And Jesus goes, not going to do it. We, uh, Eugene Peterson in a book called Reversed Thunder it's on that uh, website that is linked there on that resource page, the Trail Guide to Revelation. Uh, he says this. Here's the quote. It'll be up here on the screen as well. We live in a vast shopping mall where we go from shop to shop, expending enormous sums of money and energy and making endless trips to meet first this need and then that appetite, this whim and then that fancy. Life lurches from one partial satisfaction to another, interrupted by ditches of disappointment and cul-de-sacs of stupidity. This is what happens here, and we lurch all over the place trying to find someone or something that we center our life around. And then the third question here is, maybe we have the pronouns wrong. Write this question down, because we think it's my throne. The third question is, am I on, am I on his throne? Because we live in a culture right now that's telling you, you're awesome, 
you're amazing, you're the king of your life, be true to your, all that kind of stuff, you're amazing, you've got to be in control of your life. And Jesus wants to tell you to give us a vision of your life to go, you know, pal, you're not up to it. You're trying to run your life and control everything. You are not up to it. I'm telling you, most of the sin and foolishness and the consequences of that come from the fact that we are thinking that we're in control and I'm going to rule and reign over my life. What do you center your life around? You center your life around yourself it's never going to work. You, what you want to do is get Jesus on the throne. This is what it means to become a Christian. Say, Jesus, I give up. And it's <laughs> all apologies to Carrie Underwood. I think it's a great song. She's a great musician. It's not to bust on country music, any of that kind of stuff. The song, Jesus, Take the Wheel, doesn't go far enough. Because I say, Jesus, Take the Wheel, you know what I'm doing? Here's Jesus taking the wheel. I'm over here doing this. I'm over here. Hey, 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 whoa, whoa. Jesus, Take the Throne. I step off and go, he rules and reigns. He got the whole thing. We talk about here, Jesus is central here. He's not just a little side thing we do and put him jump off the throne and on the throne. He's central to everything that we do. So what Grant just read for us, we're gonna go back and look at the rest of these verses here in chapter four in a second. Grant just read for us the, the scene of the second thing that John sees is first there's a throne, then it's, hey, there's a scroll. And it says that he found that there's a scroll there Sealed with seven seals. Now, we don't use scrolls anymore. We use books and some people use actual paper documents for things. Um, anymore with DocuSign, nobody, with all those kind of things, nobody has any of that stuff anymore. It's just digital out there in the cloud somewhere. But he saw a scroll and it was sealed up with seven seals. And we're not quite sure exactly what's on it. But John is, says when there was no one found, no one found who was worthy to open the scroll, no one with enough power or wisdom or character to open that scroll, it says that he wept. Now, we're not talking about, oh, he just saw a commercial for poor little puppy dogs at a shelter. And he, oh my gosh, no, he's talking, this is slobbery snot coming out of your eyeballs. Kind of, I'm just weeping, heartbroken over this. And we're not quite sure what this is. As it opens up, it seems that what's in this scroll is God's plans and purposes for the planet, God's plans and purposes even for your life and my life. And John, John says, there's no one can do this because if there's no one to open that scroll, we're done. If, if, we don't, if we can't discover God's plans and God's purposes for my life, my marriage, my kids, my money, we are finished and we are done and he's weeping. And then it tells us, verse five, Chapter 5, verse 5, but one of the 24 elders said to me, stop your crying, boy. <laughs> stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. So the next thing we see here is, look, there's a lion. And it's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Write that down. There's a lion. You're going, that's awesome. And okay, here's the lion, and he's the king of the beast, the king of the jungle, lion king, you know, from our days and all that stuff. He's the lion Simba can handle it. The, the great lion has come to, to rule over the world and to quash and squash all the evil in the world. And then this is the most important little pivot point in this whole book of Revelation. And sometimes we just skip over this because we want to get to all the special effects, weird stuff. Right here is where the whole book hinges on. Verse six. And then I saw... 
important here. Several times in Revelation, it says John heard something and then he turned around to see what he had heard about and what he saw was kind of different than what he heard. This happens here. He's expecting to turn around. If, you, if I tell you, hey, outside there's a big massive lion outside, you go, oh, dang, let's go see that. But John goes outside and goes and turns around and look what he sees. Then I saw a lamb that looked What? They had been slaughtered? Now standing between the throne, the four living beings, among the 24 elders, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God. So he stepped forward and took the scroll, was able to open it. On your note sheet here, scratch out, there's a lion, and that blank that comes next, there's a lamb. There's a lamb. He expected a lion, and he sees this lamb, and it, it puts him on tilt for a bit. Not quite sure what all this means, because you'll see it up here on the screen. This next slide comes up here. It's going to tell us that there is two different words. Like, we have two different words for, like, lamb kind of creatures. There's, there's the, the first word, amnos, up there. Amnos means sheep. And back in the apocalyptic literature like that, both in the scriptures and outside the scriptures, the people of God are oftentimes called, like, the flock of God, we're God's flock, and someday the warrior sheep is coming. The big, boom, the sheep's going to make it all happen. He's gonna, and there's all kinds of literature about this. The, the mighty warrior sheep is going to come and rule and reign. And yet when John sees this, he doesn't see omnos. When he sees the word there in the original language is arnios. Arnion, and it means little baby lamb. And not just little baby lamb like... Oh, makes us feel good. Little baby lamb got blood gushing out of its throat. Slaughtered. And they would have seen animals slaughtered all the time back in that culture. They didn't go to the store and get meat from the meat counter. They would have seen this. A slaughtered little baby lamb. And what the little phrase here, maybe you want to write this down, is that the roaring lion is Mary's little lamb whose fleece was white as snow. And everywhere that Mary went, the lamb, I mean, it's a pathetic little, tiny little baby little lamb bleeding and dying. This is what's going to win? This is where we're putting our hopes and dreams behind. We're going to unpack this here in a second. A new perspective here. So a couple of things, maybe you want to write these down. Some of them will be up on the screen, some of them won't. We get a new perspective on suffering, that our God comes to us as the mighty lion of the tribe of Judah, but he comes to us as this wounded suffering lamb. We get a new perspective on suffering. We get a new perspective on grace here. And the costly grace we see here, you look at verse verse 9, it says they, people when they see the lamb come, we'll take the scroll and begin to open it. It's saying a new song. It says you are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it for you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Here's the gospel for you guys. That this, this is grace, that it's for us, because of us, and instead of us. That lamb came for us. He came because of us, and he went to the cross and experienced the wrath of God instead of us. And you can stay in the place of sitting on the throne of your life knowing at some point you got to deal with the God of the universe and deal with his wrath and judgment, or you can say, look, he did it for me. And that's what the gospel is. 2,000 years ago, what the king of the universe did by becoming a pathetic little lamb counts for me today. 
He died in my place for my sin. If you're not a Christian yet, you, that all the faith means, means, I don't know, get all this stuff yet, but I believe that. That what he did 2,000 years ago counts for me right here, right now, today. He also has, it says seven horns and seven eyes. Now we sit there and go, that's some kind of crazy, bizarre, like what the, what, what is that all about? Again, Jesus is not in heaven today as a little lamb with seven horns and seven eyeballs kind of scattered around here. It's, again, it's apocalyptic literature telling us something unique about who this lamb is. That he looks pathetic and looks weak, but things are not as they seem. Because in scripture and literature, not even just scripture literature, but back in those times, when you saw the word horn, like the horn of somebody's family, it always represented strength and power. When you saw like the eye, they have eyes, they have wisdom and insight. He's saying this pathetic little lamb, again, seven ultimate and perfect and complete insight and wisdom, ultimate, perfect and complete power. He's not as pathetic as he seems. And in fact, in the patheticness of who he is, is where the ultimate power and wisdom is. And that's where the, the uh, gotta tell you right now, um, I need you to um, take off your flip-flops and put on your boots because we're about to do some stomping. And I'm trying to be gracious about this and try to be kind about this, but I've seen your social media stuff. I've seen your t-shirts and your stickers and the things you put on Instagram. Some of you are about to be offended. I'm not trying to be, well, I am trying to be offensive, but I'm just delivering the mail here. This is not me trying, I'm not trying to do it myself. Um, we want to win in our lives. We want our side to win. We want the cause of Christ. We want things, our political, we want to win out there. And we think we're going to do it by being lions, not sheep. Remember, you've seen the sticker. I've seen the t-shirts. Again, again, I don't want to bust on this. There's something good about this, the idea of lions, not sheep. Because if we just become sheep and just kind of go along to get along, what we know about sheep is they're dumb and they'll just go wander over off of a cliff because the first guy, we don't want to do that. There's some good sentiment behind this idea of lions, not sheep. And yet, we think in the Christian community, this has been weaponized in churches and in Christian leaders all over the world, all over the country here, especially in the last two years. We think in order to win, we have to fight the battle the way the world does. We got to roar like lions and claw and just stand up and rise up and engage with it that way. And you want to see this, and you're not going to turn there. It's, you can look at it later. Isaiah 53, 7 says that he was, the lion of the tribe of Judah was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And like a lamb that gets slaughtered, he didn't open his mouth, didn't say a word. Read the gospel accounts of Jesus' trial. When all he had to do was just go, and it's over. They evaporate, they're done. And he just keeps taking it and keeps taking it and keeps taking it. And the question that's on some of your minds right now, I can see it right there because you're kind of, hmm. okay, but how far is too? Do you just keep taking it and keep taking it? Can we, can we go too far with that? Do we just get run over, just lose and all that kind of stuff? Have we gone, do we go too far with this in, in the world of the way of Jesus and Christianity? And, and maybe... But I'm telling you right now, none of us have gone too far in acting like sheep and following the pathway to victory by being sheep, not, not lions. And I know that it feels like, okay, we're supposed to be just, you know, return good for evil. If someone hits you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek. All that stuff that Jesus talked about, 
And that feels like sometimes is, well, we're just going to lose. We live in the world. Someday we win because Jesus comes back and we win. Jesus wants us to know today that the pathway to victory, not to win a little skirmish over here, a little battle thing that goes over. If you want to win the war, the pathway to victory is to lay down everything. Lay down your entitlements, your privilege, the positions that you've earned. In the year 117, uh, this is about 20 years after the book of Revelation uh, has been written and distributed, as a new emperor, his name is Hadrian. And what's happening in the Roman Empire, I mean, shoot, there were 40,000 Christians in Rome at the time of the book of Revelation being written. 40,000 of them. This is 50 years after Jesus has died and risen again. This thing has gone all the way to Rome with no power, with no laws to protect it, no first, second, third, 14th Amendment rights, nothing like that. And yet this thing keeps expanding. They try to wipe it out. It keeps growing. And he keeps getting to report these, this, these Christians, these Christians, these little Christs. What is this all about? And he commissions a guy named Aristides to go do an investigative thing and find out what's going on there. And Arist- right, you can Google it. I should have put it up here on the screen. Aristides, A-R-I-S-T-E-D-E-S, and Hadrian. Just Google that and you'll find his report. It's a long report that he sends back. And he doesn't always have positive things to say about the way of Jesus and Christians. But over and over again, he talks to these Christians are just, we, he's on tilt going, they, they serve people and they help people. And what was bizarre for him in that day was even people that mock them and mistreat them and make fun of them and persecute them. Because it doesn't make any sense to me how they do this. And here's how the letter concludes. It'll be up here on the screen. Such, O king, is their manner of life. And verily, this is a new people, and there is something divine in the midst of them. You know what he's saying here is, I have no idea, but you can only explain this by God. Culture you're living in tells you you have to be the lion. You have to live for yourself, be true to yourself, stand up for yourself. And Jesus is going to tell us as gently as he can, but as firmly as he can, because he loves you too much to let you buy into and drink the Kool-Aid of that nonsense. He's going to tell you, you you need to die to yourself. There's scriptures there. Over and over again, he says, die to yourself. He even says, not just, okay, submit to yourself and be humble. He says, pick up your cross and follow me. Die to yourself. John 12, 24 to 26, Jesus gives this analogy. He says, look at the little seed right here. If this seed just stays true to itself to be the best seed it can be, ooh, look at the seed. Awesome Let's put a seed on a shelf and spray paint it gold. And look, look at the awesome seed over here. No, no. The way the seed becomes everything it's supposed to be is to die to itself and go on the ground. And then life comes. Here, guys, we want to win here. And the, you got to see this. Find, keep something here in, in Revelation. Turn backwards to the book of Philippians. If you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you've gone too far. Acts, Romans... The books of Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. And in Philippians, there's a, Paul is telling them, hey, you got to submit to each other. You have to reach out and show kindness and forgiveness to each other. And then instead of saying, suck it up and just be better, verse 5, the words will be up here on the screen as well, says this, Philippians 2, I'm sorry. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. He says, you must, 
Not you should. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Put arrows to that next little phrase there. Though he was God. He knew exactly who he was. He wasn't like, well, I'm just nothing. I'm just a servant. I just got to be weak. No, he knew exactly. Nobody came close to him on the org chart. In fact, the org chart didn't exist. There was a whole separate org chart over here a million miles away for his supremacy over the world. He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges, his entitlements, everything that he was supposed to get. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. That's pretty radical. And you expect to see next, like, okay, and the human beings all came and embraced him. He's God. Let's let him reign and rule over our lives. No. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, this is the pathway to victory. God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the way we win. And only the most powerful people, only the most powerful will do this. I'm convinced right now this idea of we got to be lions and not sheep. It's all about people that are insecure and scared and nervous and we're just out there. we got to be standing up for yourself because we're all, I can stand up for myself. I think what's happening right now in our culture, maybe not you guys, maybe just people you know. I'm a lion. Rawr! We're like little kids playing zoo or playing jungle animals. And this is social media. This is politics. This is the last two years. We're just out a bunch of people going. And you know what it is? It's not just wrong. It's just kind of silly. And you think you're going to win that way because we're going to. See? That's exactly what you sound like. You couldn't have set that up any better. Thank you. <laughs> Maybe we need a new, a new deal here. Instead of saying lions, not sheep, put this next slide up. Lion is a sheep. Amen. And not a sheep, a little baby lamb. Daryl Johnson, a book that I read like crazy several times getting ready for this Revelation series, a book called Discipleship on the Edge. You can find that book. You can order it and read it. You'll be able to do all the messages because most of what I'm talking to you guys about comes out of a few books like that. But he has this great quote. It's actually on the inside of your program on the intersect. I kept the quote there because it's so good. So that you cut it out, meditate on it, meditate on the scriptures. It says this. The lamb reigns as the lamb, not as the lion. That is the secret of history. The lion, the almighty, reigns in the world as the lamb, not as the ferocious lion who hurts people to assert his rule, but who takes into himself the hurts of others, thereby making his rule happen. The secret of God's victory on the cross is the secret of all other victories. God overcomes suffering Suffering with and for the world. I wish I could tell you that he reigns like a lion, but he 
does not. He has chosen a different way to overcome evil by walking right into it, confronting it with the truth, and if need be, taking all that evil dishes out. Guys, we are made for a moment like this. The way of Jesus in this world where everybody's out there. If we had just a few of you to start doing this thing, people are going to go like Aristides back to Hadrian going, I don't know what that is, but that's, that's freaking different, man. Because everybody else out here is going, rah, 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 and over here they're laying their lives down. And some, there's power in that. There's ultimate power in sacrificial love that's there. So back to Revelation now. In Revelation, it says he takes the scroll, and we're going to see in Revelation 6, he to open the scroll and see what's happening in the world. And what happens over and over again, let me just read it for you. It says, they sang a new song, chapter 5, verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God and they will reign. And the verb tense there actually is, could be just as easy as and they are reigning on the earth. They are already winning, even though it didn't seem like that. It says, then I looked again and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. And they sang in a mighty chorus, Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. And they sang, blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. You know who's singing right now? That's the cats and the crawdads. That's the dogs. That's the monkeys. That's, that's every, everything that has. And I don't know how they sing. But they're saying, I can't wait to see this someday. And the four living beings said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped the lamb. This is what happens. The next thing John sees is, after look, there's the throne. There's the scroll. There's the lamb. Fourth thing to write down today, there's the worshipers. That's the response. We don't do songs here. We don't call you to worship God because... We're doing church, we better suck it up and just obey God, let's do some worship. God is not insecure. God's not up in heaven going, God, I'm kind of having a bad day down there. I need some people to worship me for a bit. Just, oh, let that all soak into me. He's a thousand million percent secure in himself, doesn't need our worship. It's, worship is the genuine response to genuine encounters with Jesus. If you're strong, all the time here, guys, I pray for you that you, I pray for people I know and love who are some places struggling with their walk with God. Is God it's, it's, I used to pray God straighten them up. I don't pray that anymore. You know what I pray? God, just let them get you. Because once you get God, once you experience God, <laughs> worship, serving, giving, inviting, all those things we tell people are supposed to do, won't be this, well, if I have to, I will, because I go to the church, I guess they're telling me, it'll just, come, it'll just flow. These people in heaven are not worshiping God because they have to, they're doing it because they want to. Um, and we, here we sing here, before the message, and there's a response to after the message. And worship is certainly more than singing. In fact, on your uh, intersect follow-up questions this week, take a look at some of those verses there. Because if all worship is, is singing to you, then God would just tell us, hey, just be quiet. 
It's certainly more than that, but listen to me, it's not less than that. Whenever, <laughs> you just watch ESPN sometime. I talked to somebody who went to a high school football game, homecoming at one of the schools this weekend. They said those people are going crazy and singing about high school kids playing football. Singing at a football game, high school football game. You go to Europe and watch European, they call it football, we call it soccer. Um, our version of football is better than, anyway, it's a different thing. Sorry. Um, you'll see sometimes with big matches, you know what they do the whole time? They are drinking like crazy and singing. And not just singing when they score a goal, the whole time they're singing. You know why they're singing? Because they love their team. And when you are awestruck and amazed by someone or something, one of the natural just responses is that we, we cry out to God and we sing. And we can see this here. Look at chapter 4. Look what happens here. Chapter 4, verse uh, 9. Whenever the living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the ones who live forever, and they lay their crowns before their throne. We know what their crowns are? The crowns were given to them by God. It's all of their, all of their success, all of their power, all of their wealth, all of everything about them that this is who I am. They take it off and they've just experienced God. God, it all came from you. It's all for you and it's ultimately all to you. Laying that down. It says they sing a song there. This is what worship is all about. And then you gotta see this. Look at verse, back at verse eight now. It says day after day, and night after night, these creatures surrounding the throne, they kept on saying, singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. Keep something in Revelation. Go back to the book of Isaiah. It's towards the middle of your Bible. You've got to see this. This is so good. Isaiah chapter 6. If you get to Psalms, you've gone too far. Just go to Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. Isaiah is a big book. Isaiah 6. Uh, this is written, we know, from history. 800 years before the scenes that John is seeing on an island in Patmos. 800 years. That's going to be important. Isaiah is a prophet in Israel, pastor, priest, something like that. It says here, chapter 6, verse 1, It was in the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. Remember, we saw that in Revelation. These creatures had six wings. And we get a little more detail here from Isaiah. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And they were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. You know what's happening in heaven? For 800 years, they've been singing the same dang song. You know why? Because they're just blown away by God. And we have misunderstood the, word, the idea of holiness. We think holy, we think like the, like the church lady on Saturday Night Live back in the day, those of you remember that? This, this tightly wound, this little, we should be holy. A little, God's making a list, are we holy enough, holy? It's not what holy means. The, word, the core idea of holy comes from this word called hagios. It just means different. Completely, unfathomably different. And we know from 800 years at least, if they started, if they started singing in Isaiah 6, for 800 years, they still have not got over how crazy, amazing, fantastic, um, immeasurable, unfathomable God is. And they can't help themselves but sing out like that. And then we see a picture of the gospel in here. It says, 
Their voices shook the temple to its foundations. The entire building was filled with smoke. And then I said, it's all over. I am doomed for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I've seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal. He had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. He touched my lips with it and said, see, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. You know why they're singing in Israel? It's singing in heaven today. Blown away by the fact that the lion, the king of the universe, became a pathetic little lamb. And when he did that, he won the universe back. He won the planet back, not by roaring, not by screaming at us, coming down like the lion going, you better get right with God or I will cut you, pal. That's what you would expect. Well, religion says, get right with God or else. He says, no, I'm going to do it all for you. You can't make yourself right with God. And they're so blown away by that, that they're just singing these great songs. This is what we, when we gather together here, and part of our response here every week is to give you a chance to come to tables of communion. It's bread and juice that symbolizes the body and the blood of the little lamb that was slaughtered for you and me, that, that stood, in God, stood in your place and in my place because of you and for you and instead of you. So every week I want to help you remember that and be blown away by the lamb who atoned for our sins. Um, as the band comes up right now, stay with me, we're not done yet. Um, there's also people in our prayer team at the back of the house. You may have come in today with some things going on in your head, your heart, your body, soul, whatever it might be. People will be getting up, moving around to come and receive communion all over in the four corners of the room. Uh, our prayer team is back there. If you need prayer for anything, make your way back there for, for that today. And then what we do here at Crosspoint is, and we don't do worship here and music as the warm-up for the main event, for the sermon. No, this is like the middle of it, and now we have a response to God. And our response to God is because we are... We are just crazy blown away by Jesus and God and everything that they, who they are and what they've done. So we sing, and we're going to sing some songs today. A song called We Fall Down, We Lay Our Crowns, and we're going to sing songs holy, holy, holy. And then chapter 5, where it says there was no one worthy to open the scroll. There's a song called, Is He Worthy? Some of you may have heard it. It may be a newer, some of you sing the song like you mean it. And I know that sometimes people go, they're trying to be kind to me and great to me. They say, Steve, you know, we love the sermons and stuff. It just, that music and worship stuff, it just, mm, whatever. I always want to tell them, well, if you don't like music and worship, you're going to hate heaven. You're going to hate it. Heaven's going to suck for you completely. This is warm up for that, where we start getting our hearts and minds attuned to all this stuff to cry out, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. So we're just going to, I want to encourage you right now. Don't just sit there right now. Get up on your feet and we're going to sing.